So, uh, for those that have been coming to the church for a while, we've been in Matthew for a while, probably about two years now, but we're at Matthew 18, which is great, and this part of the Bible now, this kind of section, Matthew 18 to 20, gets a bit fun, gets a bit tasty, there's a few bits in there that I think, as we come to them, you're going to go, whoa, gentle, lovely Jesus says that? That's pretty kind of hardcore. Why is he saying that? Why is he doing this? But it's all to do with these kind of next chapters about how as Christians, how as people that follow God, we live together. How do we interact with one another? How does that play out in our daily life? How should we treat each other? That kind of thing. And the question that the disciples ask, which is in Matthew 18 at the very beginning, um, it's in the same, same kind of narrative of what's gone before. They're not in a new location. They're in the same location. Jesus has healed a demon. He's been transfigured. There's been some cool stuff going off. And the disciples ask this question, um, which is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? That's a question that maybe you might find yourself asking sometimes. You know, if you were to ask Jesus, who is the greatest? Who are these great heroes of the faith? And if you didn't cheat, if you weren't reading ahead in Matthew 18, there are Bibles over there if you need them, you'd probably be thinking, well, Moses was pretty epic. He'd be up there as one of the greats. Maybe Elijah would be one of the greatest in the kingdom. Maybe there's even people who you know, who you've walked with in life, that have just been so inspirational, been so godly, have been just awesome people. You think, they're great people. They're amazing people. And the Pharisees would have been there going, can't wait for Jesus to say my name. My name's coming up. The disciples were arguing, and not just here, but it's in multiple, uh, it's in all three of the Gospels. You've got it in Matt 18, Mark 9, Luke 17. And the disciples are thinking, he's going to say me. He's going to say John. He's going to say Peter. I'm the greatest. And then this is what Jesus does, and I think it's incredibly cool. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is it? Is it me? Is it you? Calling to him a child. Jesus grabbed the child, put the child in the midst of them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you become, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's an amazing scene, really, when you've got all these adults, all these guys with big brains, all these kind of heroes of faith that they go on to be, and Jesus finds this kid. I don't know, the kid's obviously there like, as part of the crowd. Puts the kid in the middle of them and says, here's the greatest. This is what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This child. This child, something about this child represents greatness. Something about this child represents faith. And Jesus says this, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Practically speaking, that ship has sailed for all of us, hasn't it? Right? Well, most of us. There are a couple of kids here, so they're all right. But like, if Jesus really means here we have to turn and become like children, we're screwed. Right? I can't roll the clock back. I can vaguely remember my childhood, the good bits of it, the, the, the interesting bits of it, some of the things I got up to. And then when you see your children doing it and you kind of have a wry smile and think, well, I used to do that, so therefore it's okay. Like, actually, I can't become a child. I can't do seemingly on the face of it what Jesus is asking me. It would be hopeless for me. If I take that on face value, I've got to become a child. I can't roll back the clock, Jesus. Even if I wanted to, I can't. 
It's a distant memory. But actually, instead of Jesus saying, you must literally be a child, there's something about children that's commendable. There's something about what they do, how they interact with the world, how they interact with people. There is a childlike thing that Jesus says, this is good. To be childlike. Now, it doesn't mean in its kind of moany sense. Not in, oh, it's good when your child is asking, are we nearly there yet five times? And you've only just left. Or when your child says, I need the toilet, and you've pulled over at the service station for the third time. Like, that's not what I'm talking about in terms of, they're not commendable things, are they? They're things where we've got to work really hard on our bladder control. And we've got to learn to hold it from an early age. That's what's going on there. But actually, what he's saying is there is something in terms of faith, there is something in terms of interaction, not being a child, not childish behavior, but because we're called to be mature, we're called to have a mature faith, but there's something in the way children are that they are dependent upon God that speaks to us about how we should be. Think about it. There's a little baby there. There's Luke. There's, there's Nina, who's tiny. These little babies, what would happen if they were just left to their own devices? What would happen? It wouldn't work, would it? They're completely dependent upon external people, completely dependent upon mum and dad. And you know what with children, when you have young children in particular, you see this, don't you? They're learning every single day. You know, we say sometimes, don't we, as adults, oh, every day is a school day. And like, you know, every couple of weeks we might learn something new or pick up on something new. Well, for children, literally every day they're learning something, aren't they? Oh, the first time I've learned to do this. Think about small children from birth to like two years old. They learn to what? Talk, walk, crawl, use the toilet, perhaps. Loads of things that we just take for granted. They're learning every single day. And they're completely dependent upon other people. They learn about emotion. They learn about character. They learn about communication. They learn to laugh. They learn to cry. They learn to eat. They learn to drink. In a really small space of time, if you think about it, compared to the rest of life, Compared to eternity, in a really small space of time, we learn and we grow and they face new challenges every single day. You know, as a small child, crossing the road is a big challenge, isn't it? Going to the shop is a big challenge. It can be a bit uncomfortable, perhaps. Some of the things that are coming through here are dependence. Jesus wants us to have a dependence. Perhaps Jesus wants us to be a bit uncomfortable, that we're not to be so comfortable that we think we've made it and we've learned everything there is to learn about God, the universe, and everything. But perhaps there's still much more learning for us to do. We're told here, Jesus grabs this, well, doesn't grab the child, moves the child into the, into the midst of the people and says, this is what it looks like. This is what it means. Be childlike. Have a childlike faith. Have a complete trust in your father. And we see that, don't we? Even in small kids. Even now, my daughter's, what, nearly six I'm still not in a hurry for her to walk herself to school. I'm still not in a hurry for her to do her homework without my help. I mean, I can do the English side of it. Maths, I'll leave to mummy. But I'm not in a rush for those things because actually, that's what dad's for. To help, to show, to guide, to point. And her relationship with me should be quite simplistic. Should be quite straightforward. Here's my dad. My dad loves me. My dad wants what's best for me, so I'll trust him. That's the call. 
We've got a dad who wants what's best for us, who loves us, who goes the extra mile for us. So in every single day, in the ups and downs, the normal things of life, we've got a father in heaven who we can go to and say, Dad, I need your help. Or in the unexpected turns that happen, just as if there's unexpected turns in my children's life, they've got a dad there to help them and guide them, so too we have our heavenly father guiding us. I got thinking about multiple other ways that you could apply this, not just dependence, not just trust, but there's all sorts of other things that you see in children that are commendable. There's no offense in them, is there? They're not cruel deliberately, at least, to begin with. Kind of grows with time, especially if there's like siblings involved, but they're not harsh. And actually in their dependence, there's a real vulnerability, isn't there? There's a real vulnerability for children saying, you know what, I can't do all this by myself. I need help. We lose that, don't we, the older we get. We think we're self-sufficient somehow. Whereas actually what's being taught here is to be like a child, to go back to that kind of dependence that you would have, that vulnerability that you would have, the need of one another. And of course, most importantly, the need of God. The other thing I thought about is they don't brag all that much, at least not to begin with. So my son... He's got his little mates. They're what, three? He isn't going, you all right, mate? Guess what? I can use the toilet without any help. Can you? No. Loser. That hasn't happened. That doesn't happen. But, you know, we do it, don't we? When we get older, we're like, oh, look, I've got this achievement. Have you got that achievement? Oh, I've done that. Have you done that? Like, and we just do this whole one-upmanship. Children don't do that. They learn that. It's not a good thing that they learn, by the way, but that's what they learn. They're not like that. I don't see that in my, I see it in my daughter, but my daughter's like me, like, and it's not good. And I've got a, we've got a responsibility, actually, as parents, as adults, to teach and to train and to show there is a better way. To show that that dependence and that love for one another and the consideration of the other is really important, that humility is something to be valued. You know, if you put a small child in a bunch of adults, okay, they might have fun and they might, they might be, yeah, you know, real fun to be around. But there's also a humility there, isn't there? There's a recognition, okay, I'm not grown up. I'm not the one making the decision here. I haven't got all the answers to all of life's questions, and that's okay. And I can trust in people outside of myself. They display massive humility. And you know, we have, like I said, we have such a responsibility when it comes to children in, in teaching them and showing them there is a better way. That's what we're to do, to point and to say, actually, humility is a great thing. And actually, we need to learn from them. So often we're so concerned with, our kids need to learn from us. I need to look at my children and learn from their character, from their humility, from their vulnerability, from their graciousness, from their kindness, from their believing the best in one another. They're things that we have to pick up. It's a simplistic faith. It's not simple. It's not a simple faith. It's simplistic in that it's straightforward. It's, I have a God in heaven who loves me, and I know that, and I'm secure. That's what we need to come back to. And there's this beautiful, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I've spoken about this before. Acts chapter 4. Um, Peter and John have healed someone at the gate, beautiful, in the previous chapter. They're getting a bit of stick. Then in Acts chapter 4, these two really common, scruffy men are preaching the gospel. And it even says that. It says, but these two men, they're like, 
They're fishermen or something. They're like uncommon. They're like, they're just, not uncommon, they're common men. They're just like everybody else. And then it says this in Acts 4. Okay, the religious leaders are like making accusations of them. He says, oh, there's these uneducated common men. All right, there's these, there's these guys with a really simplistic faith before us, it seems. And then there's this amazing line. The crowds, this is what it says. They recognized they had been with Jesus. Like, they recognized they'd been with Jesus. Uneducated, common, fishermen, it could be anybody, any of us at any time. They recognized they'd been with Jesus. And you know, no matter our background, no matter our start in life, no matter our level of education, or where we feel that we fit in society, or where society says that we fit, actually, why don't we just change how we shape and view people by, have they been with Jesus? And actually, if there's someone that has a simplistic faith, a faith that's so dependent upon God, instead of that being something that we belittle, that should be something that we celebrate. And we need to be more like that. That for all our answers, for all our big brains, for all our academics, we need a simplistic faith. We need a straightforward faith. Because it conveys something. We need a childlike dependence upon God. You know, children, they will take it at their word. Do we take the Bible at God's word? Do we say, yes, that's your word, God, now go with it, no matter how uncomfortable that makes me feel? That's what we're to do, to have a a simplistic, straightforward dependence upon God. He doesn't want us sat around arguing about who's the greatest. He doesn't want us doing that. That's our temptation, isn't it? Who's the best? Who's the greatest? He doesn't want us doing that. He wants us to be humble. Jesus carries on. Whoever receives one such child receives me. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Whoever receives one of these children, whoever treasures a simplistic faith, treasures me. But whoever causes, this is what I mean about, sometimes you'd have heard this said, right? Oh, I love everything Jesus says. He says the most beautiful things all the time. Warning, this ain't beautiful. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. End quote, Jesus Christ. That's what he says. The child in this, the little ones in this, Okay, I want you to get this in your mind. Although he's using children as an illustration, he's talking about those that follow Jesus. So there when he says, whoever causes any little one, whoever causes one of my children to go astray, that's you and me. If someone causes us to go on a path that is not from God, then woe to them for what's coming. Woe to the judgment. It's severe, isn't it? Doesn't that make you think, oh, I so need to get this right. Oh, I need to honor God in all that I do. Because the stakes are really high here. But also it says, for someone with a simplistic faith, for someone who's going after God, they don't have all the answers, it doesn't matter. Be generous to them. Be kind to them. Love them. Go out of your way for them. Be humble with them. Celebrate with them. Don't knock it. We're so good at knocking stuff, aren't we? Let's start building each other up. Let's start building each other up to go above and beyond where we go. What a great thing if, you know, we're talking about children a little bit here. There's children, there might be spiritual children in the church, people that are younger than us. Let's have our prayer that they go further and do more than we will ever do for the kingdom of God.
That they will go above and beyond what we will achieve and what we will do. That they will know God greater than we will ever. Not that we shouldn't keep seeking, but that we'd be so pointing and helping and encouraging that it gives them a head start. We need to be people that get behind and support one another. Whoever receives one such child receives me. The other line about leading one another astray is not pleasant. Not where we need to go. Not what we need to be. We start doing that and as church we start serving ourselves a bit of an own goal really. We're knocking each other. We're knocking chunks out of each other. We're fighting against each other when the battle is out there. The battle is over people that don't know Jesus yet and the kingdom of heaven advancing. Not internal, but out there. So Jesus' teaching here is, guys, you need to look out for one another. You need to encourage one another. You need to lay down all the stuff, all the bitterness, all the envy, all the doubt. Because church community, I don't know if you know this, should be like no other should be like no other. There should be no place like church in all the world. And I don't mean just Redeemer King. I mean the global kind of Christians. As a Christian, I should be able to go into any other church. And there's my family. In anywhere in the world, with any language, and that's my family. That's what it should be like. That's what it has to be like. And it's not, oh, we're this denomination and we've got it completely right and they haven't. That's not receiving a simple faith, is it? That's not encouraging one another. That's not building one each other up. That's knocking chunks out of each other. And the consequences there are grave. If you read verses 7 to 9, I'm not going to read them. I'm not going to go through them. But Jesus deliberately overstates some stuff there. He intentionally makes overstatements about if you sin, then gouge out your eyes. You know, and we've all sinned, but we've all, most of us have got two eyes still here, so we're obviously not doing that. It's, a, it's an overstatement by Jesus to make a point. Sin is really severe. Don't lead people down it. Don't be the one to lead people in a wrong direction, guys. Don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. So often, the lines blur a little bit, don't they? Because we kind of, when we think of stuff when we're in rebellion to God, we don't think of it as severe. We think of it as, ah, oh, it's all right, I'll do this, it don't matter. Nah, it's all right, it's in the Bible, it's a couple of thousand years old, nah, it don't matter. I'll say this, I'll do that, it doesn't matter. But it does matter. Jesus died because of it. That kind of gives you the level of how much it matters, how critical it is. Don't underplay its significance and instead have a straightforward, simple faith. And you know what, those straightforward, simple faiths that we hold? We're worth dying for. That's what, that's what Jesus did. There's warning there on how we treat one another, isn't there? And how we love one another. And then, if you've got your Bible, you'll see this like little golden nugget. Um, it's the very next verse. That somehow, a week ago, when I was kind of looking through this, I missed. And then as I was looking through it again, I was like, Oh, what does this verse mean? This is what Jesus says. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. So see that you don't despise someone of faith, okay? Don't despise them. And then there's this. For I tell you, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father in heaven. I read that again this morning and I was like, oh, what? (laughs) What does that even mean? You know, and just, you know, as soon as we start thinking about 
angels and all that kind of stuff. I just want to categorically say, this is not, I have an angel on one shoulder and a little devil person on the other, and they're both whispering in my ear. That's not what this is. Also, I don't believe this is, we have an assigned guardian angel. I know it reads like that, but I don't think it's that. I think it's better than that. I don't think there is an angel who's got like on his forehead a, you know, a thing that says Dan's angel. I, I don't think that's a thing. Let me explain to you why. This is Hebrews 1. This is what it says. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not, speaking of angels, all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? My grandma probably still says this, actually. Whenever you go on a long journey, she's a great godly woman. Although on this, I find it funny. And she says, just be careful when you drive. Godspeed, be praying for you. But just remember, the angels get off at 70. I'm like, okay. I hear you. The angels get off at 70, apparently. But it's better than one angel. Angels are not flappy-winged, in white, like, you know, pretty boys, pretty girls. Like, you know, that's not what they are. That image, throw it away. They're messengers of God, and they are hard as nails, and they are scary. Right? If you met an angel, you'd know about it. Okay? That's what you see in the Bible. Every time people meet an angel, what do they have to say? Do not be afraid. You know, when you meet me, do I often say, do not be afraid? Gaz, it's nice to meet you. Don't be afraid, mate. It, it, it's, I'm not scary, I don't think. Like, there's something about angels like, whoa, wow, these guys, they're cool. There's something about them. And this verse here, Hebrews 1 says, are they not all, all angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Do you know what this means? That all angels at all times are those who minister to those who are following Jesus. How cool is that? I think, is that cool? I think that's pretty exciting. All angels at all times are ministering and protecting, which means whatever they are doing is for the benefit of Christians. Whatever it is in their mystery is for the benefit of Christians. And so what Jesus is saying here, this is why Jesus has said this whole angel thing. Don't despise a follower of Jesus because they've got angels who see the face of God. Holy macaroni. I ain't going to mess with that person. I ain't going to knock that person. They've got an army of angels looking out for them. Back in 2002, I went down to London town with my family for what was the Golden Jubilee. It was absolutely rammed. Like, the busiest I've ever... I mean, London's busy anyway, isn't it? But it was like heaving people everywhere. And obviously, I was a bit smaller than I am now. And so... It's quite intimidating, huge crowds everywhere. Now, if I'd met the queen one-on-one, I didn't. I didn't. But if I had, it would have been glorious. It would have been amazing. It would have been a beautiful thing. It would have been cool. But I didn't meet the queen like that. Instead, for the gold, I didn't even meet the queen, but I saw her from a distance. The golden jubilee. You know what was going on there? There were so many armed police, I couldn't count them. 
there were so many horses with police arm, with guns. Then there were soldiers with hats. You know the ones. Um, I don't know what their name is. I call them soldiers in hats. Um, there was guys and girls with swords. They were all marching. They were epic. It was amazing. And it went on for ages. There was like thousands and thousands and thousands of them. And then there was the queen. And then there were thousands and thousands and thousands more of them after the queen. Now, all those soldiers, all those people, they didn't make the queen any more glorious than she was if I'd met her one-on-one. She's still an amazing person that if I met her, I'd be like, Your Majesty, I would change my voice. Like, I'm your humble servant. Like, just an amazing, godly woman, isn't she? But actually, what did all those armed guards, what did all the soldiers, what did all the guys in the hats, what did it convey? It reminded me of who she was. It reminded me of her title. And actually, for us, with this angel thing, if we're, we've got armies of angels that are ministering to us, armies of angels that are, are with everyone who follows Jesus, you know what that reminds us of? Or should remind ourselves of Christians as we look at one another, who they belong to. Oh, that person has an army of angels. I see what's going on here. I ain't going to knock and despise them. I'm going to build them up. That's what I believe that verse is about. The person, people, human beings, Christians here, we're not only valuable to Jesus... We're not only valuable to one another, but we get assigned angel armies. They're so cool. I just think that's phenomenal. It's amazing. The person is valuable. They have an army of angels, and they're worth rescuing. Look at this. This is just what, how Jesus carries on. You think, why is this story here? This is why. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one goes astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and search for the one who goes astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You know how he wraps up all this? He's... He started by saying, be like, have a childlike faith. Then when you see someone with a childlike faith, encourage it, build it up, celebrate it, protect one another, look out for one another. Don't despise it. Why shouldn't I despise it? Because they've got angel armies. And then you see this story. Then you see this parable of more than that, more than the angel armies, this person is loved by me. If Jesus loves them, then what should we do? If Jesus loved the world, shouldn't we love the world? If Jesus laid down his life for people out there who have not heard of Jesus, what should we be doing? Laying down our lives that people would see Christ in us. That's the call here. There's a hundred sheep chilling out, quite happy. One sheep goes astray. Who's the shepherd in the story? God, Jesus, the shepherd. Who's the sheep in the story? Me, you, us. Now, sheep, I'm, I don't take, I'm not insulting you. I'm talking about sheep. Of all the animals in the animal kingdom, I don't think they're the brainiest. I don't think they're the best looking. I don't think they're the most, ooh, I'd love a sheep as a pet. For me, 
the best you... Oh, I can't, I don't know if I can say that anymore. I enjoy lamb. And that's a kind of good use for sheep. And woolly jumpers. They're good. But we wander aimlessly, don't we? And we can wander aimlessly through life, just like sheep seem to wander aimlessly. They walk out in front of you when you're driving your car. They seem to not look twice. They don't stop, look, and listen, do they? They just go for it. If a, if a, if a dog gets lost, a dog will try and find its way back home. If a sheep gets lost, I don't think that thought even enters its mind. Oh, another piece of grass. <laughs> Brilliant. And so it's like there's this one sheep who's gone off and then the shepherd goes after it. He leaves the 99 on the side, safe, secure, and goes after the one. The Bible, as you go through the whole of the Bible, describes us as sheep in multiple places. We, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us. And sometimes, as disciples of Jesus, we go astray. So he leaves the 99. As I grew up with this story, I always struggled. Because I'd look at that and go, that's not fair. What happens if I'm the 99? What if I'm the one that holds the line? And he's going off and he's rescuing this other sheep and rejoicing more over that one than me. I'm like, well, what about me, Jesus? If I'm one of the nine, I mean, I'm probably the wandering one, but if I'm one of the 99, what, what then? And it just struck me last night. You know what? If you're one of the 99... If you're following Jesus and you're not gone astray at this point, that's a really great thing. You're plugged in with church. You're plugged in with community. You're serving God. You know why God says that's okay? Because his plan is the church. Why can Jesus leave the 99? Because we've got each other. He can't leave the 99 if we're all just doing our own thing. But if we're church, if we're God's people together, loving one another, full of grace for one another, it means he can go out. And you know what? Do you know what that application is for us as well? It means if we're doing church right, if we're a community of God people, if we're solid, we're strong, we're following Jesus well, we can reach out. You see that? That's what this is about. Jesus, despite our foolishness, despite us getting things wrong sometimes, he comes to rescue us. He could travel night, He could travel day. He won't stop. The good shepherd won't stop until he grabs that sheep. And in Luke's gospel, there's this beautiful image where it says, he grabs the sheep and he throws it over his shoulders and he marches the sheep back home. God carries us. If all we would do is if we're going astray, there may be some of us here this morning that feel that we're not in the right place with God. You're not where you ought to be. And it's subtle things, friends. It's not like all of a sudden you're all the way over here. It'll be subtle things. That might be you this morning, that subtly, you're not where you need to be with God and you know it. This morning's the moment to turn around again. And as we turn around, who's there to come and get us? The one who lays down his life for us, the good shepherd. Jesus says this in John 10, that he knows his flock by name, that he knows each and every single one of us by name. You know, you might just feel like a face this morning. Jesus knows your name. Jesus cares for you intimately. He will, he will come after you. And then this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When we mess up, when we fall short, and we all do, and we all will, we stop, we turn. And in Luke's gospel, it talks about us repenting. Repentance is that word of saying, God, you know what? I've got this wrong. 
Will you forgive me of all the stuff that I've done and I'll turn around? And there he is to rescue us. I think it was Justin Larkham came and it was a beautiful illustration when he just said, I can walk a thousand steps away from God, but if I stop and I just take that one step of repentance, there he is. That he comes for me. That he rescues me. Whatever I've done, whatever I'm struggling with, he rescues us and brings us home. Also, this passage puts a high value on church, doesn't it? Puts a high value on community. Puts a high value on being plugged in and being part of the family of God. Point of this passage, the point I want to leave you with, is actually, guys, for us to get back to the basics of having a simplistic faith. That when we see that, it's not something we despise, but we encourage. We recognize that we have angel armies on our side. But also that each and every single human being, no matter how far gone you perceive them to be, is not beyond rescue and is not beyond grace. If people are beyond grace, we're stuffed. But people are not beyond God's grace because Jesus, because he dies for us, because he's raised a new light for us. And you know what else it tells me as a Christian, if I'm holding the line, if we're keeping going, if we're, we're recalibrating and we're following after him faithfully, it's so important that we point one another. It's so one, important that we, as sheep, we're pointing each other in that right direction because it's so easy for us to go astray. And you know what I love most about this? That Jesus goes after the one. Just the one. The one he knows. The one who's named He leaves none behind. And in our attitude and in how we convey the hope of Jesus to the world, we have a God who loves. We can't write people off. We have to be people that, like in this story, are prepared to go above and beyond to show and to point to the hope we have in Jesus. We can't save them. I can't save you. I can't guarantee your eternal life. Only you can do that by turning around and allowing Jesus to rescue you.